0: I always tell new comedians, I go, don't worry. When they ask me for advice, it's like the comedy end of it is just getting on stage. Everybody has their own process. But the business part is harder. I feel like I can give advice there where you just go, don't watch what other people are doing. If someone gets something ahead of you or you get something ahead of someone, it doesn't mean a lot because every comedian has a very unique, individual, distinct path. And so comparison is pretty futile in this business.
1: I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I'm excited to interview Ryan Hamilton. He's a stand-up comedian. He's been on Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, and The Conan Show. He has his own Netflix special called Happy Face, and Rolling Stone called him the next great comic to watch. Plus, he's toured with Jim Gaffigan and Jerry Seinfeld. But this episode is fun because we talk about him making the leap from an ad agency to comedy, about meeting Jerry Seinfeld backstage at Carnegie Hall, then going on tour with him. But we also geek out on his writing process, how he decides if something's funny, how he iterates with that idea on stage. And then at the very end, we hit on some half-baked startup ideas that he has. But I really hope you enjoy this episode kind of inside, you know, how a comedian really kind of fine tunes their, their craft and writing process. Ryan, would you introduce yourself?
0: (laughs) Me introduce me. That's a new one. Um, Sure. This is what happens when you do like the low budget show. I mean, not (laughs) that this is a low budget show, but this just reminds me. I have these flashbacks of where you show up and they're like, is there someone introduce me? No, (laughs) and then you have to be backstage, and you kind of think, ah, this guy recently (laughs) appeared on The Tonight Show, please welcome Ryan Hamilton, and you run out there, and you see people's voices, like, I think that's the same guy, is this like a one-man band? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Did he change
0: jackets? Was that it? Yeah. (laughs) Well... Hello, I'm Ryan Hamilton. I guess uh, we've known each other for quite a long time, so this is a treat for me, Jim. And you've always been so great to help me out. And I don't know if you want to talk about how we met, but <laughs> you know, you were one of those people who just came to me and said, "Look, I'm a fan. I think I can help you." And I've always been so grateful for the help that you've given me, and you really have helped me so much. I feel like I'm
1: introducing you now, but that's you <laughs> but know. that was actually the whole plan. So so it worked out. Well, I think it's good to have context. So. Whenever I lived in New York, we, we lived in this area of the West Village, and we didn't know it, but we were lucky in the sense. We were a eight-minute walk to the Comedy Cellar. And I feel like a lot of people go to New York, you buy tickets to Broadway, whatever. In my mind, the Comedy Cellar was literally the best ticket in town, especially for the cheapest price. Yeah. I like didn't want people to know about it. First off, people that don't know what the Comedy Cellar is, how would you describe it to people?
0: The comedy cellar is like the mecca of comedy in my mind. It is the place you want to be. It's also got this amazing energy about it, which a lot of clubs can't capture. I mean, the onstage environment and the onstage experience is amazing. It's got a few different rooms now, it's grown a lot. But the original comedy cellar room, there's some, it's very small. It seats like 90 something people. But the way that it feels when you're on stage is just it feels great. Like you have a connection with every person, there's a lot of energy in the room. And it's weird because there's sometimes you think it shouldn't work. Like there's only one bathroom in the whole place (laughs) and you have to walk through. And even the people upstairs in the restaurant are walking through to use the bathroom. So there's a lot of things where you think this shouldn't work, but for some reason it works amazing. I mean, it's the very classic brick wall, low ceiling basement comedy club. But to me, it's the kind of the iconic one. You know what I mean? It's the one where it's like all the others are kind of based off of this model. And then upstairs is just this other world where people love to hang out and you walk in there and you just feel like... I think everybody has this fantasy of like, I want my own cheers, you know? Like, And to me, when I started working regular at the Comedy Center, I was like, wow, I found a cheers. I can't believe I'm so lucky to have a cheers. You know, like it just feels like You know, everybody there, there's lots of regulars, you eat, you have dynamic conversation, interesting people come in. It's just kind of a magical place for me and and kind of saved me in New York, to be honest. I was ready to go. I couldn't hack it anymore. I wasn't getting on stage. And then I started getting one spot a week there. I got an audition and it changed my mind about living in New York. I mean, I love New York, but life was hard there (laughs) and it made it a lot easier just to have a place to be, you know? Yeah. I used to walk by the comedy cell and think if I could just get on stage once there, that is now like my regular place. I haven't been on stage in a year, but, you know, when I was a
1: comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually want to come to that you going to New York and staying, but to drive it home with the comedy cellar, it literally is the Madison Square Garden of comedy, the Coliseum of comedy and you go there and it's magical for someone like me because it's 10 to 20 bucks a ticket. You have to order two items and all of a sudden you could be there and Chris Tucker shows up or Seinfeld shows up or Judd Apatow pops in and you're like, wow this is amazing and they're just testing material. Yeah, You have to get a ticket two weeks in advance. There's a wait list so it's amazing but when people would come in town, we would always take them to the cellar and we went at least like every other week and what we found was we would go and you killed it every single night where we would look at the list before we would like go in and be like please say ryan is on there so we wanted either you or gary goleman and we knew it was yeah. going to be an amazing night it got to a point where like how does the world not know about ryan because you're you just killed it every night and so it was probably after a few glasses of wine we like emailed my wife and I, i'm like emailed you because i do digital marketing stuff and i'm Can we just talk? I was like, I'd love to get a conversation. (laughs) And you actually replied, not to say people should email you because whatever, but it was super fun being able to go to the comedy cellar with you. You are the mayor of that place knowing everybody it is it is a cheers yeah man it was it was really cool to see i mean it's just all the up-and-comers of comedy that people would go on to have huge names like yourself get a netflix special but it's like the training ground in in my opinion yeah
0: the thing that i love about the comedy sellers they really put comedy first like if you're not killing regularly it's kind of like you see it in terms of how many spots you're getting you know what i mean yeah and i love that it's like that's what it should be it's like and there's so much variety there of different types. Types of comedians, like you mentioned, Gary Goldman and I—we're both kind of the same tone, but on our stage presence is very different, you know. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, it's just been fun to know you since those times, and I, we always have that comedy of connection.
1: Yeah, that, that's a special place. So, I'm pumped to geek out on your writing process because I have so many questions. But first, I want to talk about—I'm like, always interested in people's inflection points with their career so you didn't grow up going to comedy school you actually had a job i believe in pr in seattle and then all of a sudden you make this jump to comedy can you walk through the point of like, hey, I think I want to test this. Wow, I might be good at it. I'm going all in. Because I think a lot of people get nervous and making those leaps and jumps. It looks like you did it quite seamlessly, but I'm interested in what validated that, put it in dumb terms, that you were funny enough to do this.
0: Well, I don't know if it was seamless. And it's hard to explain unless I go way, way back to my childhood, actually, because mm-hmm. I always loved comedy from a very young age. I'm from rural Idaho, I should mention, <laughs> and which is where I am right now. <laughs> Yeah. and in the house I grew up in here. And, you know, just, it's a very small town, like a thousand people. But for whatever reason, I was drawn to comedy. I don't know why. I, we used to read this Dave Barry's humor column in the Sunday paper when I was a kid. And that was one of the first things that clicked with me where I thought, wow, this guy just gets to sit around and think about funny ideas. And that's his whole job. And he writes them down every week. And I thought, what a great job. And then a Evening at the Improv came on cable. And I would make my family watch it every week. And it was like this weird world where I didn't know what comedy clubs were. But I was like, there's Bud Friedman, this guy who's kind of like the club owner. And there's this place where people hang out every night. And there's these weird guys I'd never seen before, like people who I'd never heard of who were just writing jokes and getting on stage. And it just locked into my head. Like, I just fascinated by these guys, you know, and I would think about their jokes later. And I would start to write my own jokes. And I would think, I think if he changed that, it would be better. I mean, this is me as like a 14 year old kid. <laughs> then I thought, well, I'm going to start writing a column in the newspapers, but we didn't have a school newspaper. So I called the county newspaper and they said, sure, you can have a column, which is only a thing that happens in amazing. You
1: know, like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, we found a new writer today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody wants
0: to do it, you know. It's like (laughs) which is like a joke I have about a small town where it's like people don't think you get diversity of experience, but you kind of do because you have to do everything. Like, no, there is no specialization. It's like everybody does everything. So I was like this guy who was known as someone who was interested in journalism and writing. And but mostly I was interested in being funny for me. And I thought about it for a long time. And then when I went to college, I'd written this column, and then I found this little sketch group, and then I was a broadcast major and some some of us had this radio show and we were interested in comedy and we decided to do comedy shows broadcast in our little tiny uh whatever it was 1000 watt radio station or whatever that you know had like a 3 mile radius on campus and we would do these stand up mm-hmm. shows we did like four of them but i wasn't even thinking about a career it was just something i was drawn to all the time mm-hmm. I went on, I studied public relations and journalism, graduated, got a job at a PR agency, which was actually in Salt Lake City, not Seattle, but I did live in Seattle shortly after that, but I got laid off from that job. And I was doing comedy just for fun, you know, as soon as I had time. When you
1: say doing comedy for fun, were you doing stand-up at the same time?
0: I was for a short period. I always wanted to do it, but I always was working and going to school at the same time and juggling several jobs and just, I just didn't have capacity. I wasn't thinking about it as a career. I was thinking about something I wanted to do. But I remember that I finished my last final. The next, I went home, I went back to my apartment. I'm like, I'm done with college. I have a part-time job. I called this comedy club there in Provo, Utah, that day like I finished my final and I was like I'm calling the comedy club I have some time and they said which is remarkable to me like I wouldn't think anybody listening to this don't expect a comedy club to do this I don't know why they did this it was a weird little comedy club that really needed local people they said come down on Friday and do some time and I was like okay I would been on stage like four times amazing yeah so I just started going <laughs> hanging on comedy clubs as much as I could another comedy club shortly thereafter opened in salt lake city i was there every night and then i was working and doing comedy on the weekends and at night and i was couldn't stop thinking about comedy i got laid off i was like okay i'll try to find another job didn't have a lot of luck immediately got a job as a parking valet and then i started to just go okay i'm gonna jump into comedy for a year and see what happens
1: so were you intentional where you're like i'm literally giving myself 12 months to see if this works whatever like works means was it that intentional to to give yourself time.
0: Yeah, it was. Well, I didn't say I was going to quit necessarily if a certain thing didn't happen, but I did say, Mm -hmm. okay, I don't have a lot of money. I'm probably going to go into a little bit of debt to do this (laughs) because I wasn't making a lot of money. So I did have this other job. I just cut my expenses down to the bare minimum that I could. This is when I moved to Seattle too, because I needed to get on stage every night Mm -hmm. if I was going to really do this. So I moved to Seattle and I thought, okay, I'm just going to evaluate myself after a year. And if I'm not happy with where I am, then I can go back and get another job. Mm. A couple things happened. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making a little bit of money, not enough to support myself, really, kind of, but not any semblance of like a normal, you know, humane life. (laughs) (laughs) But I did win this in Seattle. I won this comedy competition. Well, I won the industry night in this comedy competition, the Seattle International Comedy Competition. I met some managers and agents from L.A. who were the judges, and they really encouraged me. And I got an audition for some sitcoms, actually, based on this one night. I went down to L.A. Wow. It was wild. I had no idea what I was doing, navigating the business side of this. I made some real blunders (laughs) just out of naivety. But it was an experience that gave me confirmation like, okay, these people who really know the business have kind of encouraged me to keep doing it. That was within that year. And I thought, let's see what happens in another year. Wow. And then something else would happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's like those validation points hey, I think I'm on to something. So you're doing it in Seattle. They're flying you to LA to get you in sitcoms after winning you know, one competition, which is quite impressive. When, I don't know if the next step is you deciding go to New York because this is where I really validate I'm on to something. Was that the thought or how quickly were you going to New York?
0: Well, it was weird because I wasn't really drawn to New York right away. I was just work. I was a road comic. I kind of after that became a road comic. Like I had that moment in L.A. where I got a studio test. Like I was there for like a week mm-hmm. and I got a studio test for a sitcom, which means that you've made it to the final couple of people. And the studio is just testing to see who's going to get it. I had a contract drawn up. I had no idea what I was doing.
1: just signing whatever you need to sign yeah yeah
0: i just had a couple of good auditions like beginner's luck or whatever
1: do you remember the sitcom
0: i wasn't in it okay oh well
1: yeah it was it wasn't like friends or something or something real no it was
0: something that i think never made it on the air it was like gotcha i remember chris o'donnell was the like main anchor lead I can't remember. It was like something brothers. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I didn't end up getting it. But I thought, OK, if I get it, I'm moving to L.A. If I don't get it, I don't have money to move to L.A. I'm going to go feature, middle, be a middle act on the road again. So I didn't get it. And I just started working on the road as much as I could and getting good at stand-up comedy. And that's what I was really drawn to. So I was just... Mm-hmm. I moved back to Salt Lake for a while because it was cheaper, and I just drove all over the country, and I took anything I could get for years. I did these terrible one-nighter gigs. I did so many crazy gigs, just getting on stage anywhere I could. Mm -hmm. I really kind of went full-time as a comedian earlier than I should have, but it drove me to do these crazy gigs, and this was before social media, really, so there wasn't a lot of other options. It was just getting on stage. And then eventually I got this offer to do a thing for Comedy Central in New York City. Yeah. And it was called Live at Gotham. It was my first TV experience. That summer I did Last Comic Standing and this show on Comedy Central, like within months of each other. And this was my first time taping any sort of thing for TV. I got off stage... It was also Amy Schumer's first time taping anything for her. I didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was. We'd never met, but she was on the same show I was on. I got off stage. Mm-hmm. I was first on this. I'd never performed in New York. They made me go first. It was at Gotham, which is so weird to think about now. It's like... <laughs> I, I lived there, you know, but I got on stage, Amy ran up to me and said, I'm Amy, you're moving here. We're going to get a place together. Yeah, It was like, (laughs) and it's in my head, like, and I really started to explore. We never got a place, but she wanted to, you know, be roommates and just do comedy together. she was hungry and she, I don't know, she liked my act and we became friends (laughs) and I had a couple other friends who lived there and it kind of stuck with me. Oh, and then Amy and I did Last Comic Standing a couple months later. And she, after that, just skyrocketed. And it stuck in my head, like, maybe I should check out New York. And I started to really explore it. And it seemed like the place to be for stand-up comedians. And there was, I had a lot more connections in L.A. The Comedy and Magic Club in L.A. was looking after me. And they said, move to L.A., we want you here. But I don't know, I thought, if I don't go to New York now, I'll never have a New York experience in my life. If I go to L.A., I'll probably never leave L.A. If I go to New York, maybe I'll go to L.A. later. So I went to New York. It was a temporary temporary thing. I got like a sublet for a few months. I kept my apartment in Salt Lake, which was like so cheap. And then, um, I just ended up never leaving and loving it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I just, the people you're surrounded with there is like so contagious and energizing to keep pursuing. So you go to New York, Rolling Stone writes an article calling you the next (laughs) great comic to watch, which that's awesome, but also a lot of pressure when they, they they put that label on you. You then, when did your Netflix special launch? Was that 2018 or 19?
0: Shot it in May of 2017. It came out in fall of 2017. Yeah.
1: And then this leads to all opportunities where you're touring with Jerry Seinfeld and Jim Gaffigan. But you you mentioned at the start that there were points where New York was rough and you weren't sure if you were going to stay there. I list off these bullet points. It looks all rosy, but were were there certain points where you're like, this is tough? Or there was was doubt where it got very real? Or what's kind of the mindset pushing through that? Well, it's
0: interesting you bring up the Rolling Stone thing because there were many things like that. I had a lot of things at these festivals. I would win these little competitions that were industry things. I won a lot of competitions, even though I wasn't like trying to. It was just like the avenue that I had that was available to me. And I won this thing called the Sierra Miss Next Great Comic, mm-hmm. And that was like a national thing. And that was before I moved to New York. And then this Rolling Stone thing, they put me on this list, like comedians to watch, which had like Bo Burnham on it. <laughs> and like, who else? I can't even remember now. But people that you'd be like, oh, those people we should have been watching. And then I just, like, my whole life, my whole career, even now, <laughs> is kind of like, I've just been this guy, like, Keep your eye on this guy. And I'm like, how long am I going to be a guy to watch? And is this my fault? Like, Is this on me that I'm not excelling <laughs> as much as I should? I had a lot of thoughts like that. I was just working as hard as I could, but it's also like, I don't know. New York was getting very hard because even though I had these things, these TV credits, New York is not an open door for anybody who's a professional comedian. It's like nobody knows who I am. I, got, I showed up there. The clubs don't really care about you being on TV, they kind of care about what you've done since you've been in New York. Or like you establish yourself in New York. And what did you do as a New Yorker? Mm -hmm. So I was there for years, just like not able to get on stage. I would do the little rooms, like the comic produced shows, but getting regular spots at the clubs, which is kind of like why I moved to New York, wasn't happening for years, a few years, probably. And it just takes time. I mean, that's not unusual. That's kind of to be expected, Mm -hmm. especially for someone at my level who was not a big headliner, but working and had a couple of TV things. It's just the way it is. But then uh I got an audition to the comedy seller. Amy actually Amy and Anthony Jeselnik got me this one night I was there just hanging out and they go, Have you ever seen Ryan? And she goes, The booker Esty, who's now just one of my dearest friends, was like, No, but you know, do you wanna go on? I was like, Oh no. I couldn't I was so nervous. I went on a few hours later and it went okay and that changed the momentum for me in new york and the clubs yeah. they kind of look at each other's lineups too you know and they go oh he's starting to work here maybe we should you know so
1: wow it's a domino effect so you get on these stages and mm-hmm. it sounds like you have to earn your kind of street cred in new york it's a small community to some extent where if you get in that room it opens up doors to these others but then it also I feel like it extends your network that leads to even bigger opportunities outside of the stage is that the platform that opens because the thing that's interesting with comedy it's i'm thinking from a business perspective what are the paths you go because i'm very naive it's like okay i assume you then get a tv show or you go on tour and you sell out madison square garden and, yeah. and that's it right i don't know the other options but like talking to you and your agent peter it's like, yeah. actually you can do corporate gigs and those are yeah. extremely lucrative there's all these other things and i don't know if get to that status opens up those opportunities. It can
0: be. I mean, there are, there's so many different paths you find out when you start doing this, living in this world, and it all comes from different ways. I often think, you know, it's really hard to set goals sometimes as an early stand-up comedian because you really don't know what doors are going to open, and you just kind of take, you know, what an opportunity and go. This is an opportunity that I have right now. I'm going to run with this, and it may not be the thing that you thought two months ago that you were like, okay. This is the direction I want to go specifically. So, and a lot of it is because of other comedians, you know, other comedians help other comedians. We open doors for each other, you know, like, the Netflix special really came, I think, as a result of going to the Montreal Comedy Festival for several years and being seen by the industry there. And eventually people going, you know, this guy deserves a shot at this. We like his hour. You know, they needed an hour, I think, that was in the kind of area where I am in comedy. They they mm-hmm. they needed that spot. And they knew about me because of that. And they knew that I had an hour ready to go because they'd seen it mm-hmm. already. So... You never know, you know, and then you get to a certain level where you kind of start to direct more of your own career. And that's where I'm kind of learning right now about what I need to be doing, you know, and trying to progress uh, myself. But that's how it happens in the beginning, I guess. I always tell new comedians, I go, don't worry when they ask me for advice. It's like the comedy end of it is just getting on stage. Everybody has their own process, but the business part is harder to, I feel like I can give advice there where you just go, don't watch what other people are doing. If someone gets something ahead of you or someone, you get something ahead of someone, It doesn't mean a lot because every comedian has a very unique, individual, distinct path. And so comparison is pretty futile in this business. It's like some people get something early and it can be a detriment. Some people get something late that they should have got a long time ago, but it works out in their benefit because now they're more experienced or whatever, you know. So everybody's path is so unique that you just have to kind of trust your gut Mm -hmm. in making these decisions and taking the opportunity. that are ahead of you. That's how I feel.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's good advice in general for any career. Like comparison is what the the enemy of progress. So you talked about creating an hour of content, which sounds so freaking hard. I wanna get to that, but first, can you talk about, you went on tour, you've been touring with Jerry a bunch. How did you get introduced to Seinfeld, who in some regards you could say is the guy and you're able to go on tour with him. How How does that happen?
0: Yeah, it still blows my mind that I'm able to work with him. I mean it's strange to talk about these things now because the last show that I was supposed to have was a uh opening for Jerry at the Beacon Theater uh March 13th and 14th of uh 2020 in New York City and you know we had lunch and <laughs> he said what what do you think? Are we going to have shows? Well, I don't know. The next day he called it, a day before Broadway called it. Mm-hmm. So we haven't been on the road. I don't do all of his dates by any means, but I get to work with him occasionally. And it's been just a beautiful, amazing uh, experience to see him work. We met. I was opening for Gad El Malay, who is, a, if you don't know, a very big comedian. In France, he actually has a series on Netflix called uh, "Big in France," which is (laughs) thing about his life in the U.S. But he is just a student of comedy, and America is, in terms of stand-up comedy, it's just like the place to be. It seems like so. Even these international comedians, they kind of keep their eye on America. He's a student of, of American comedy. He moved over here to pursue a career in English, which is just so I can't imagine starting a second career in a second language
1: especially when and he... it's comedy the nuance is yeah. everything yeah. yeah
0: yeah oh my gosh so he could speak english but you know it wasn't completely fluent he was learning as he goes and it was a lot of work but he knew who i was just because he was a student of comedy over here and he kind of latched on to me and and liked what i did and i love what he does once i got to know him and we became close friends. He happens to be good friends with Jerry. And um, Gad did this big U.S. tour. He asked me to open for him at Carnegie Hall, which was the last final show and of this wow. tour. Yeah, and I'd never been on, you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to be on stage in Carnegie Hall with my friend Gad. And I just didn't want to mess it up. And Gad's audience, a lot of them are you know, English as a second language. A lot of them are French people here in the States, even though he does have an American fan base now too. But I'm nervous because they don't, you know, they want to see Gad. Anyway, I've worked with him on the road. I have some jokes for his audience now. And I'm there and Jerry's there hanging out. And Gad says, do you want to meet Jerry? I go, yeah. So Gad pulls me into Jerry's into his dressing room where they're just hanging out and Jerry's so accommodating and kind and and he goes Are, have you ever been, played here before and i go yeah he goes you have i go no i've never been a- <laughs> <laughs> part <of the> <laughs> And he's, laughed. and he's like, he gave me some really good advice about these big concert halls where the theaters that we're used to normally have the wing where you can see mm-hmm. the stage manager when you look over. But Carnegie Hall, for acoustic reasons, is built so that there are no wings. There's a door that opens up that looks like the wall and it closes when you come out on stage. So there's nobody. You're alone. And it's a long <laughs> walk to the microphone, which we're not used to. So he told me, he said, this is going to be different than other theaters because of that. So he gave me this great advice right before as they're calling my name over Ryan Hamilton to the wings, Ryan to the wings. I'm like talking to Jerry. I'm like, I'm going to wait till this is over. (laughs) I go go, uh, immediately. I'm like finding my way. I get there. I go directly on stage. I mean, they're introducing me kind of like, as I get there, I do this set, I come off stage. And then Seinfeld is right there when I come off stage and he watched my whole set and he's like, that was great, Ryan. So fun to watch. And then we watched Gad together, our friend, at this huge show. And we just, as comedians do, just had fun. Jerry had a little walk-on moment. After the show, there's all these people around. I mean, Gad knows a lot of people. (laughs) And they pull me into the dressing room again. I'm like the last person there. There was like Sarah Jessica Parker here. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> Jessica Chastain here, like a bunch of people that I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm overwhelmed, and I'm the last person in, and they close the door, <laughs> and I'm like, and everybody's kind of looking at me like, oh, we saw you too, you know, and um, Jessica Seinfeld it was there, and she's with friends with Sarah Jessica Parker, and she's like, wow, we loved you, you remind me of my husband a little bit. Oh my god, like, I get like a little red because I heard that before in my life, and I'm like oh, I never thought this moment would (laughs) happen. I'm just trying to be myself, you know, but I have heard that. And I go, yeah, I I hear that from time to time. And Jerry goes, you do? I don't see it. And everybody (laughs) laughed, fell out. And then they started talking about their own things. But I was like, what a moment for me. And then a couple nights later, I was at Gotham, um, where I did my first TV spot. And Jerry loves Gotham. And he happened to be there that night he was walking in i mean just a couple of nights after this we had met so he saw me he goes come here and i went over and he, he took me outside in the hall and he just he was just so complimentary and kind and he said we just loved your set and it's so encouraging to watch people who just love comedy and he told me so many great things that they had said at dinner when i wasn't around about my set and He just, you know, was kind and super encouraging. And we kind of just, you know... It was like, oh, maybe it was just amazing to me. And then a few months later, we bumped into each other a couple other times with Gad, whatever. And he asked me um, if I wanted to go on the road with him. I got a call from my manager. So Jerry's got some spots. So I said, let me check my calendar. And ever since then, um, we've just been able to do that once in a while. It's so fun. It's just a great opportunity for me, really. And he's so gracious with his experience and his knowledge and loves to talk about it. So we spend a lot of time doing that.
1: Yeah, it's got to be so surreal. Someone that I'm sure you would watched growing up and got inspiration from all of a sudden you're meeting them face-to-face and having to have like a normal conversation and try and keep your cool. That's yeah. But now you're friends. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. So I have to ask, so you're, you're on tour with Seinfeld. He's well-known. Yeah. My co-founder, who's the ultimate productivity guy, not even for comedy. He likes Seinfeld because he's a prolific writer, amazing with habits. I've got to think as you're traveling with him day and night, what are you kind of learning from him? absorbing from him as you're being able to be a fly on the wall as he's doing his work
0: yeah i mean he is a guy that once you get to know he has his life dialed in i mean we love to talk about comedy i absorb all of that but also working with him i do absorb a lot of the way that he's able to create so consistently and how he's kind of designed his life to be able to maintain this level of consistent production you know and all the things that he's been able to do. And he has encouraged me in certain habits and others I've just kind of observed. I have a long way to go (laughs) in this kind of self-development world, but it has definitely influenced me. He is very consistent about his life and his writing and his health, you know? He knows that he needs to take care of himself so that he can continue to work at this level. And it's demanding, you know? Yeah. So that's been really a great opportunity for me. And I think about it a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things that I've learned, but I don't know in terms of there's like in terms of creativity. I've learned a lot. And then in terms of life, I've learned a lot too. Family is very important to him. That's kind of his first priority, mm-hmm. but he does take care of himself very well and loves to ride. Some of the things that I've learned about, you know, creativity is this consistent way that he's been able to write every day. And, you know, he makes it enjoyable. He doesn't overwhelm himself, but he makes it consistent. So he has a party at his desk (laughs) when he sits down to write. He gets everything set up (laughs) and it's his time to enjoy. You know, it's not to him seen as this laborious thing. When you think about writing as a writer, it becomes weighty, you know, It becomes heavy. It becomes this burden. And he shuns that idea. And the point is to have fun, you know, in the creative process. So he makes it enjoyable. And that's how you are able to do it consistently for such long periods of time throughout your life. That's one thing that I picked up from him that has really benefited me quite a lot. Because, you know, it's hard to go, okay, I'm going to write an hour every day. And you start to think it. it gets heavy. (laughs) But when you think about it as like, not the output, but the act of just doing it, of enjoying the creative process, the burden is suddenly lifted. And if you do that every day, you look back from a year and you go, I created a lot of stuff, you know, and I enjoyed it all. And that's what he has taught me. I don't know exactly what he would say about this, but I think he would agree with most of this based on our conversations that we've had over time. So... That's one thing in terms of creativity.
1: It's almost changing that voice in your head um, because it's so funny. Some of these tasks we build up to be so painful in our head, they're not that painful. They don't take as long. But if you can flip the script on it and be okay, this is going to be a fun activity. I look forward to it. You can, over time, condition yourself to like it. I got to think the output is better, especially when it's writing about fun things, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's like,
0: and your mind gets in this, kind of like pattern where it expects you to have this little party every day, you know, and it's like Yeah, <laughs> you need it. And I am not as disciplined as I should be a lot of times about this. But that is one thing that has helped me become more and more consistent yeah. that I've really gained from him, you know, but everybody has the own process. But that's one thing that I think everybody can kind of apply to whatever process they have you know
1: it's funny it sounds so simple but it's really the thing it's like be consistent and those little habits add up significantly so that leads to so this is what i'm really interested to hear is if people haven't seen your stuff please not to be a complete advertisement for you but go to netflix watch it go to your website watch the videos because the thing with your type of comedy i'm interested to see your process is it idea first Do you write first but honestly i i wonder if it's a third is can i say jokes is that what i should say jokes Sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll say jokes. They have this this feeling after you say it. You're like, finally, someone said it or someone gets it and they yeah. articulate it better than the way you have said it. Those are my favorite types of jokes. And I feel like yours have that component. So I want to know the process. And I'm sure there's it's a very case by case, but like, is it idea first? Is it you just I'm going to write for 30 minutes per day, something's going to come up, or you want to create an emotion or do things happen throughout the day and you're writing it down and where do you write it? Do you have post-its? Is it Evernote? I'm super interested in how you keep the idea machine going.
0: Well, every Everybody has their own process in this, but I think for most comedians, it's kind of a combination of all of what you're talking about, because it's very unique in that it's not like a nice thing to have audience feedback. It's like a complete 100 percent requirement to have audience feedback to create this stuff. So it's a combination and it's a lot of editing really uh when you get down to it i just keep notes on my phone i also have a little notebook that i keep around the house and by my bed you know it's not my phone but so i have both of those and then those things are usually not funny when they're written down they're
1: just <laughs>
0: like these weird kind of like this is something a lot of people can relate to also something i'm interested in which is really something i like to think about which is very valuable in creating these types of jokes that's kind of where those things start and then I sit down and go, how can I deliver this to the audience, this idea, this weird little premise that I have? Like, how can I get it from this principle into, I need a vehicle to deliver it, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I kind of map that out. And then I, I have a beat or two where I think there might be a laugh. And then that's when I take it on stage. And I try to get to those laughs as soon as possible, but still you know, supporting the idea as much as I can. So as little setup as possible to get to the laugh. And then if you see where you get the laugh, but what usually happens is you get a laugh somewhere that you didn't necessarily expect it. You might get a laugh where you thought you would, but you might not. And then you go, okay, now we've got this new uh, thing to work with. It's like the sculpture you're making, but it's kind of being revealed all the time. And so you go, okay, now you go home and look at it from this other angle. And you go, okay. I've got this weird thing over here that I didn't think about yesterday. We got to balance it over here, whatever. And so you start just tweaking it and then you take it on stage again and again and again. And you do that like a hundred times. And then for myself, (laughs) I get really lazy where I kind of lived with this idea, at least for me, that that process is very difficult. It's really hard to come up with a new premise and get a big laugh at the end. So I end up using the momentum of that to create another laugh and another laugh and another laugh. And I try to just stretch it. And I I like having these big chunks, you know, and then it eventually turns into like this chunk is what we call it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it works for me. But yeah, those reactions that you're talking about, like the classic, that is so true. And that's what you're looking for. Like Mm -hmm. people are always saying that. It's like they're laughing. We're going, that is so true. The the recognition that like, I knew that was true. I've never thought about it exactly in that context. I'm so glad. (laughs) It's amazing that you recognized it. And then just the, the surprise that they have confirmed this already at some point in their life, but it's never been verbalized is elicits some sort of laughter, you know, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, and I'm interested, you know, you could probably write all day long, but it sounds like the advice I've heard for you say to people, is get on stage as quickly as possible because you're so good, comedians in general, iterating on feedback from the audience, right? Yeah. Because that's when you really know you're onto something. And I'm, I'm interested in what are some nuanced changes you've made that have a significant impact? I don't know if there's examples. Is that something that you can think of examples where it's a little change had a big impact or is it is it not that simple?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that happens all the time and sometimes a joke stops working and it's such a nuanced thing that you can't you don't even know what changed Mm -hmm. i'm so scared to go back because i haven't been on stage for a year and people kind of think no you just get on stage and you do it that's what you've always done (laughs) but it requires all this kind of like that's why we don't stop getting on stage because like once you get off, it just kind of, it'll come back. But it's like a lot of this stuff you can't even write down, you know? It's like the mm. way you deliver the syllable or whatever. Right, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of this. I mean, it happens constantly, but so funny. If I was in the process of doing this right now, I would have like <laughs> 10 you know, and yeah. I'm not in the yeah. process
1: of doing it right now. I'll, I'll throw yeah. some examples. You talk about this idea, then the vehicle to deliver it. You have a great gym membership joke about you. Can, you can only cancel it if you write a letter. But then you go to the extreme of talking about writing letters, and then you like become someone writing a letter during the Civil War. And it's to go to that extreme to drive because it's like you take this point. It's so ridiculous you have to write a letter. So it's like you accentuate that to the fullest degree. But it's, that joke would have been funny with a letter writing joke. But then going that path of civil war it's i think it builds it's that momentum where you take a laugh and it's okay that's funny how do i double down on it i don't know if that was always in there the civil war part but it takes it to a next level
0: i'm not certain where that happened either but i probably would say that happened like i had i'd worked on the letter joke and then i bet i was on stage and i just started I just had this energy behind, like a lot of it's fueled by anger, you know, where I'm like, I don't want to write a letter. And then this is the letter that (laughs) I probably started writing a sarcastic letter on stage at some point, like dear monstim, you know, and then (laughs) me like doing the action probably thought, Oh, that seems like, to me, that joke has always been, like, the documentary voice that you see on, like, when there's, like, (laughs) you see the letter and the script, and then you hear someone reading who's, like, an actor who's supposed to be the fourth soldier. (laughs) So that probably popped into my head, and then I just started acting it out. That, I bet, is how that developed. I'm not certain. I don't remember, but I bet that's how that developed. Yeah. Yeah yeah
1: there's another joke where i love not being a new yorker but then moving to new york and living there there's a lot of humor in that and you hit on a a lot of stuff that like i'm from oklahoma and then i moved to new york that that i just loved in the sense that like there's this mentality with new yorkers not to stereotype but if you can make it there you can make it anywhere and the idea of the midwest and those are the jokes where it's finally someone said something and it's like knowing your audience and knowing when to hit on those because you bake those into the bit are those things you just annoy? because it's follow the anger follow the pain is that where the humor comes from with those
0: i guess i think just came because i felt it was unique i was different than a lot of the comedians in new york i felt like because i was from this very rural place i was from idaho I, i landed there and I would just, just living in New York, it would be like the ignorance of New Yorkers about what's going on in the rest yeah. of the country, yeah. even though, you know, they're very open-minded and everything. And that's how it was best exhibited was the lack of knowledge of geography. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, that's something I can latch onto. And it's just very fun to make fun of New Yorkers in New York. Like those jokes work on the road, because everybody knows New Yorkers. But that was a big reason that I really fought to shoot my special in New York City, because I knew that that chunk Mm -hmm. needed to stand up in front of New Yorkers, like it needed to be New Yorkers who were I'm delivering it to. Otherwise, it's kind of like taking pot shots. You know what I mean? It's fine on the road. But Mm -hmm. like, if if I'm going to record this, I want it to be in that environment. So yeah, I guess that came Mm -hmm. about because of anger, also, I don't know. I mean, you know, the other thing yeah. that you learn as a comedian is over time is you just, it's not like you choose things. Sometimes things choose you and who you are is not something you can change. And so eventually it just comes out on stage. And that's one of those types of jokes is like, mm-hmm. it's just me being authentic. And those are the thoughts and feelings that I was having about New York at that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How much of doing a performance is really good material in writing versus how much is delivery? Because I know with certain comedians, there's something like Dave Chappelle can say anything. It's hilarious. You know, other comedians, it really needs to be crisp and tight. As you're testing things, how much of is it the material versus I can take this to the next level? Not that you're like a physical comedian, but there's physical components to it that are important. Is that stuff that you're working through? Because I know at the seller, sometimes you guys will videotape yourself just to see how you're delivering things. There's this physical yeah. component to it.
0: Yeah, I like to use the whole instrument, you know, like I like <laughs> to perform. Like, uh, yeah. what's amazing about stand up comedy is you don't have a lot of tools, you know? You've got you, your body, yourself, your voice, your inflection, yeah. and you've got a microphone and you've got a stand and you've got lights. And you have a stage and then it's like, how do you use this stuff? So I think for me, it's just such a great benefit to be able to, that's why I like doing theaters because I can move more freely. It feels right to move and perform. And so... I don't know, I don't really write those things. They just kind of develop, like the even the letter writing thing about the gym membership. I remember that it was only just shortly before the special, I was doing the letter writing thing, but then I thought, what if I start marching like uh, the Civil War, <laughs> you know? So that even was like something where I just kind of developed uh, this character on stage and you add to the humor by, you know, using your body and creating even more visual elements, you know, creating this picture using every tool that you have. So that's how those things come about. I mean, we do tape ourselves and watch, but it's mostly because you really are blown away by the things that you're doing that you don't know that you're doing when you watch yourself. Mm. That's what happens when you watch yourself on tape. You go, I can't believe I've been doing, like I have, there was a long time, a period of years where I would shake the microphone like this for some reason. <laughs> I would like make it. And I finally watched myself enough times and it it was like, I didn't even know I was doing it. You know, and it's distracting distracting. Yeah. So that's the value of recording yourself. Mostly is that you find out things that you're doing or something looks different than you think it looks in your head so you can correct it, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 Man, I, yeah, that, that's crazy. But yeah, I'm just impressed with how you all, how you're able to just optimize and iterate to get it just right. So one thing you and I like talking about is just random, half-baked, dumb startup ideas. Yeah. It's kind of fun. One thing that I want to hit on is, like I'm an agency owner and I'm like, Ryan, we write ads, we write copy for people. And sometimes people want us to be funny and it's hard to be funny. You need to start a creative agency where you just come in and give a hit of humor and you need to put an insane price tag on it to be like a hit job where someone wants to make their campaign funny and it's like hey you could have ryan hamilton you get people from the comedy seller you get two hours of their time to drop in and see their writing process and take it to the next level i think didn't seinfeld he did some advertising campaign writing right and what Well, previous life, I, I, or... I
0: understand he, I know that he, he did these American Express ads that I remember a long time ago. And I think that he wrote those, yeah. which, you know, incorporated Superman. He's a big fan of Superman. I don't know how it came about or whatever, but advertising is really interesting to me. You know, I used to work at an ad agency myself. I did public relations, but once I got to the ad agency, I realized, oh, I was supposed to be a copywriter. I didn't know what I was supposed to be my role <laughs> in the yeah. agency. And the copywriting guys, those guys' jobs looked really fun, where they're just coming up with ideas. A lot of times, you know, laughter is such a great way to sell something. So yeah, we've talked about this. It would be fun to, but I don't know, especially if it's something that I'm passionate about, a product that I, I'm already like interested in and thinking about. It would be really fun to just to apply the humor to that and go, here's what I would do for you guys, right? Yeah. Just, I don't know, who knows? I mean, I've thought about this forever just because I've been around ad agencies for so long and I work with these guys and I studied this stuff in college. And yeah, I don't know,
1: I guess- uh I'm an unproven concept or real. <laughs> <laughs> There's um at Morning Brew, which is like an email newsletter. They, I don't know if they still had it, but they had a tone guy where they'd write the actual email of what's happening in the world today. And then the tone guy comes in, punches it up to make it funny. Oh, really? Yeah. You, you could be the humor guy, but you charge a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money. You swoop in and you take it to the next level. The problem is that the quote unquote funny person at the agency is going to become really insecure because you're like editing all their stuff. <laughs> Everyone wants to have that dollar shave club viral video and people will pay an insane amount of money for it so it is validated there's a line item in people's in in companies income statements to pay for this so anyway that's the first idea so if um if there's anyone listening yeah it's interesting you know
0: because we're yours. normally we're called on as talent like to be in a like you know a lot of comedians just like if you're a guy who's a commercial guy you just go to auditions all day and try right, to yeah. be the interesting guy in the commercial and be the next flow with progressive <laughs> you know like that's the dream job yeah, yeah which is not a bad gig uh, obviously how
1: much do you think flow makes do you have any idea i mean she's up there with uh, the most interesting man in the world i mean i don't think anyone's yeah. at that level but people know who flow is oh
0: for sure i read an article i don't know her but i read an article once that i think she's started in New York doing stand-up and sketch actually she was a comedian and yeah you have to be loose and you have to be funny for those auditions and I've been on the road too much to be one of those guys I've had commercial agents and they get really frustrated with me because you really have to be home like almost all the time because they call you at the last minute and go there's an audition tomorrow you know when you're on 50 the- oh, yeah. percent of the time they just kind of go this is too much work you really have to be there
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so I've tried it but I just yeah. it's never worked where I'm just traveling too much to be suitable for those agents. But yeah, it's a great gig if you can get it, you know? So we're called on for those things, but the other side of the ad, I think there's a lot of value that we could bring you know, because we are focus grouping our stuff every night. You know what I mean? If you want to look at it like that, it's like, we know what resonates. That's all we do. We just constantly try things. So I think the value that we have is this experience that we bring from just being on stage every night and you get a sense for what is going to work. Like you're not always correct, but over time you hone this ability to be like, this is going to hit, I think. And I think there's some applications. There,
1: maybe, you know? I mean, because you even mentioned that you'll work with other comedians to fine tune and act. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's like you and three other people that have Netflix specials that were all just on Fallon or whatever together brainstorming ideas. That in itself, scrap the agency, give them two hours of the comedy writing room that they get to just brainstorm with. So all you have to do is show up and iterate on ideas. But then you'd have to be home to be able to actually, we could do it from the road. So you're fine. The other thing, your show here in Seattle pre COVID, you perform in a theater of a thousand people then afterwards you go downstairs and there's 150 people lined up to just say hi to you and shake your hand and it was painful for me to see that you don't sell merchandise you don't have t-shirts you don't have mugs and people were making their own shirts with your quotes on it and like talking to your agent peter it's like you're leaving so much money on the table and peter's like i i know and he <laughs> has like a guy for you but like you almost need to have this merch company it could be so easy for, There there's teespring and things out there but how do you make a merch company that can make products that are almost unique to you but you could scale it but anyway i feel like there's a lot of comedians that do some really fun merch that i think is pretty lucrative right probably
0: i mean yeah i think some people make a lot of money i don't know why i've never done it i have always thought if i had a book that i wrote and i was proud of i would love to sell that on the road something like that
1: yeah book's a good idea but then you got to write it but yeah that would that would do pretty well. yeah
0: I had this idea, now that we're just brainstorming, I mean, we're giving away all of our great ideas now. <laughs> we'll cut it, we'll cut it. <laughs> I had this idea to do uh, like a magazine, just one episode of a magazine, but it's all written by me and it's got like reviews of things that I love, places I love, maybe a short story I wrote, maybe an interview with someone that I want to interview. And it's just like, it's packaged like Us Weekly or something it looks like, but it's all it's yeah. that would be a fun way to deliver something to somebody but all these things require work and <laughs>
1: i think you should do a weekly newsletter quarterly magazine and one it's just a great way to keep the fans engaged but it could be fun but yeah. to the point on merch i do agree you want to put something cool out in the world but we went to Cannon beach over the summer and we love Cannon beach i literally bought the mug because i just wanted something from Cannon beach and so every time i, I drink coffee yeah. from the mug uh, i it's my go-to mug so i think people would want the similar thing like put on my ryan hamilton you know yes. flip flops or well, you won't have the quote on it but right. uh um, yeah okay so here's the other thing that Blew my mind, and I sent you this article when I found out about it. So, Cameo, we need to talk about it. If people don't know, Cameo essentially allows you to get a personalized video from a celebrity. It could be maybe an A list celebrity, it could be like a Z list celebrity, but you can get a video. I actually just got one for my friends that I played basketball with in middle school from this will say a lot about me and growing, growing up in the suburbs of Oklahoma, but from Bone Thugs and Harmony. Um, so, Lazy Bone recorded a video for 99 bucks. What? And he did a really good job. It was thoughtful. He used, I just, you get 20 seconds. I record a video to him to ask him what to say in it. Yeah. And he took all my notes. He had his music in the background. He had his like Grammy awards in the background wow. and recorded a video. And my friends were like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Wow. 99 bucks. I would have paid probably 299 for it. So wow. there's this article that Kevin from the office makes a million dollars a year from Cameo. So I ran the numbers for you. A million <laughs> bucks means he's doing 5,000 videos a year. So that's kind of a lot wow. cuz he's 199 one, 195. So that's 14 videos per day. But the videos are like a minute, maybe 2 minutes. So that's under an hour of work and you can see his library of videos they're kind of similar where he does some of the same jokes over and over again because it's not like these people are watching all of his videos you're just watching the one personalized for you so you could literally have a dedicated set for birthdays bar mitzvahs whatever that is but here's the thing so kevin he was probably the 10th guy on the office so granted the office is the most watched show on netflix so his reach is pretty good but i mean if you do i don't know three to four a day that's a quarter million dollars and you've got the email list you've got the netflix special but i also think i like kevin from the office now because i watch his videos and they're funny whereas before i'm wait who's the guy from the office so i think it's a good brand awareness play for you but then you have to do work which we've decided we we don't want to do so they have reaction videos where you can they film the reaction of the person Watching those is hilarious because everyone's uh, surprised. Like, wait, how do they know my name? Uh, it's it's uh, that's cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's yeah. cool. I'm sure it's a thing that maybe that'll be it. Maybe maybe in the future the tale will become so long that we will just do <laughs> individualized shows, one on one. This will be like all I'll do is we'll sit yeah. at home. I'll do a very high price <laughs> ticket. With three people in their living yeah. room, and then I'll just do that every day. <laughs>
1: Well, I, yeah, I'm just constantly, I can't imagine being a a stand-up comedian wanting to break through today. It's almost paralyzing with all the channels at your disposal, which is good and bad to like, oh, you need to be on Twitter. You need to be on Instagram. Oh, you know, TikTok's happening. Okay. Now it's Clubhouse. It's it's quite exhausting. You know what, you said something. It's about consistency to get recognized, which I do agree with. However, I've seen some examples with people that have blown up their following by actually just all you need is like one to two hits, potentially viral and have a huge referral component to it yeah. to get people excited. And so that's something I'm like kind of obsessed with. For us, like working with startups, it's like, how do you actually like engineer virality? And it is the 80-20 rule of a small number of these posts or whatever are a breakout success. Like we have one startup that just did 1.5 million in sales on the back of one video. They invested a lot of their eggs into that video, yeah. but it's gangbuster. It's such a hard balance. And I'm sure with you, it's, you know, you get on the Tonight show that's a huge hit but how do you engineer something yourself that doesn't have that distribution channel to to get recognized and to get out there but Uh, that's yeah that's exhausting
0: (laughs) i mean (laughs) i think if there's any comedians who are (laughs) listening to this and wondering what to do about i feel like as a comedian your main job is to just keep creating whatever it is in any format even if it's not put out into the world in any way at this time if you just keep creating There will be opportunities to use this stuff somehow, somewhere you won't even know. I mean, there's like so many pitch meetings you go into where you go, okay, we're not interested in that, but what else you go? And then you go, well, you know what? I had this weird idea (laughs) and I wrote this thing about it and they go run with that. You know, it's like you just keep creating and if you stop creating, that's when Things get scary, but if you just keep creating, you will find a venue for it eventually. Somehow, it will become valuable, and there's so many ways to do that now, which is so cool. And I don't want to be down on cameo. I'm just saying that was my reaction. I'm sure that you know, for some people, this has (laughs) been like. Uh, a big boon and it's been great and they feel this energy they are able to connect with their fans and that's cool so um i don't know who knows but uh my thing is
1: (laughs) i know i I sound like i'm I'm getting a kickback from camera stop pushing it so hard i just it's a magic moment using it i was blown away i'm glad you had
0: a good experience with it and maybe i would enjoy it who knows i mean i have this kind of i'm like the opposite of an early adopter whatever this is where something comes out and go are you kidding me? No. And then like six months later, I'm like, well, here I am. I guess I'm doing it.
1: <laughs> it's not scoring yeah.
0: my career well, but that's just my personality, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, it's tough because sometimes it's a home run, yeah. but most of the times it flops. It's like, well, that was a waste of time creating my Vine <laughs> channel and my Vine following. So yeah. I like leaving with the last question, which is kind of a, a fun thing. I actually uh, didn't give you a heads up on this, but what is the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career, especially with a career where it's kind of dependent on breaks and opportunities and people giving you confidence, whether getting started or even the break at the comedy. So like, can you think of any one person or thing someone did that was the nicest thing someone did in your career?
0: Oh, man. You know, there's been so many kind things. I'm just trying to think, what would be something really that stands out? I mean, maybe Gad, you know. Gad, just, he's such a big star. And the first time I met him, he just came up to me and said, I really enjoy your work in this kind of broken English. I had no idea who he was. And I said, thank you very much. I went and sat down at the company. (laughs) Some people go, do you know who that is? I go, I don't know. And he's just standing there. And then... We run into each other a couple more times. You know, I have a lot of friends, but he's been a guy that I can call on like family or something, you know. So just knowing that is really great. But I'm trying to think of something really great. I mean, for no reason. We were just like on tour and he followed me into my dressing room when we got to the theater. He's like, what's that? And there's this really nice, beautiful, very expensive piece of Ramoa luggage with a bow on it. And he's like, I think that's for you, and I'm like, what? And it was just like a gift to give me a gift, you know. And it was for no reason, a really, and I needed it, something that he knew I needed, and just was like a cool that just made me feel so good, you know. And um, that's one thing that pops to mind. And the moment with Seinfeld that we talked about earlier, the very kind things that he said to me out in the hallway of Gotham were just like, you know, he doesn't need to do that it was authentic and it felt mm-hmm. like it was such a boost to me that was very very big and amy has called me so many times in my career it's like you need to do this do this do this she's always trying to get me to do things that like we're different kind of tones so she's always offering yeah. this stuff where i'm like i don't know if i could do that she gets <laughs> such a kick out of it but she's also helped me with so many things there is this like support system built in within comedy where People help each other, comedians help each other. We have our managers, we have our agents, we have you know these people, but the comedians really look out for each other. It's quite amazing. It's such a small community and every comedian has been helped by another comedian somehow. So it's not like it's even going out of your way. It's just like naturally what we do as comedians. So yeah, those are just a few of little things, but there's been a lot, yeah. There's been a lot.
1: That's pretty cool. Just getting the compliments from Gad and Seinfeld. But the thing about Gad giving you a piece of luggage, that's something my wife and I talk about. It's like, we need to be better friends. Not just give people a gift on their birthday, but just because, you know, you get gifts on your birthday, but it's when somebody gives you a gift out of the blue, you remember. So now I'm gonna like stop giving birthday gifts and do like the random February gift because it's much more memorable, right? Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes, I've been wanting to do this forever. I think this every year around the holidays. It's like we all give each other gifts, like. It, but there's all this pressure, and like, wouldn't it be so much better if we gave all those people the same gifts, but just when we were inspired to give them the gifts? So it's like, yeah,
1: not forced, yeah, yeah,
0: when we're inspired, and as long as you're getting each of those people within the year somewhere, it just seems so much, and it's so much more fun to receive something when you're just like, what? This is just Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> you know? <It's> like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you there i'm sure i'm sure we're gonna finish this and i'm gonna think of like three other just mind-blowing kind of like kindnesses (laughs) that i have received um so i'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have done so many good things for me but
1: no that's awesome well i cannot wait till we're in a world where you're back on tour because i will say i saw you in february pre covid wait yeah that's was was that pre-covid well it definitely was like I don't know if it was 2020 or 2019 you came to Seattle and I've seen you quite a bit, but I'll be honest, that was your fastball. That was the best I'd ever seen. You're like, not that you're like, I don't know when your prime is, but it was really good. I know this because my mom has the loudest laugh in the world. She was sitting next to me in the theater and people were turning around looking at her. She was laughing oh, really? so loud. I was like, mom, I know Ryan's <laughs> funny, but we've got to, we've got to take it down a notch. Yeah. It was such a good show. I can't wait for you to get back on tour, but um, yeah. That, oh, that thank time you. It. I
0: appreciate it. You've always been so supportive and you've always helped me so much talking about kindnesses. I mean, you have just for no other reason than just because mm-hmm. You wanted to and, you know, helped me so much. So I'm so grateful for everything that you've done for me too. It's been uh, really great. I'm glad we've got to spend some time together over these years.
1: No, it's a blast, man. I always love seeing you perform, so it's fun. Um, Where could people find you? Where do you (laughs) want to point people if they want to see your stuff or want more Ryan Hamilton?
0: Right now, it's pretty sparse. I, I, <laughs> I am not great. Like with social media. I mean, I'm the most active on Instagram and I like connecting with people there. So that's uh, where you could probably find me the most. Uh, Ryan Hamilton with my name with an <laughs> I have a website. I have this email list that you have helped me with. And if people want to sign up for that, I will let them know when I'm on tour, RyanHamiltonLive.com where you can find that and uh also you can find me on cameo, uh, cameo uh, it's my full-time gig <laughs> breaking news yeah that's all, all i do i do uh, i do three dollar cameos eight dollars a day and
1: that's how i get my yeah yeah get, get yourself a nice mobile home with all that income yeah. so yeah. Uh, well that's awesome well ryan this was super fun thank you so much man thanks jim i appreciate it thank you Today's episode is brought to you by no one yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth GrowthHit Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfect a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.